Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 331 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics. I feel like they're all my favorite, but this is definitely high up there. And that is on raising pigs. And we've covered raising pigs before in different episodes of the podcast. We've talked about the Heritage American Guinea hog breed known, I'm using quotation marks even though you can't see them, kind of as AKA the homesteader's pig. And my experience, so we'll, in the show notes, we will link to those if you wanna check out some of those prior episodes, my experience with them. And in today's episode, I'm really excited because we're going to be diving into pigs, but we're going to be talking about a lot of common or often seen advice when it comes to raising pigs, specifically on the feed, what you are feeding your pigs, pasture management, um, and some other things like that, that are often inaccurate or not necessarily serving the pig and the farmer the best. So today's episode, we are going to be diving into with today's guests. I'm really excited. You'll hear as soon as we start the interview of how I met them, a bit of the backstory, but I'm going to forewarn you that when I introduce him, don't have your volume up too loud. It's just for the first little minute. You'll get you'll get why I say that when you get there. It's all in a lot of good fun. And I think you'll actually really enjoy it and his enthusiasm about the topic. But before I get there, today's episode is sponsored by ButcherBox, which is quite fitting as we are talking about meat. So if you're not at a point on your homestead journey yet, or you don't have a local farmer where you can purchase your meat from, then ButcherBox makes it easy to get high quality, humanely raised meat that you can trust. They deliver 100% grass fed and grass finished beef free range organic chicken and heritage bred pork, along with wild caught seafood directly to your door. We have actually sampled all of the above. It has always came and been completely frozen, even when it was at the very end of the day and the very end of the rural route that we're on for a delivery driver. And we have not had any that we haven't liked. I've been very impressed with the quality, the flavor, the way that it cooks, all of the above, if it's not something that you're able to raise yourself. And one of the great things is because you are a Pioneering Today podcast listener, there is a special going on through January 20th. It is the new year's bundle and you can get seven pounds of meat free in your very first box when you sign up as a new customer with ButcherBox. To snag that, go to butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today. That is butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today and get your seven pounds of meat free in your first box. And thank you so much, ButcherBox, for being a sponsor of the Pioneering Today podcast. If you are a new listener to the podcast, welcome. A longtime listener, high five. Welcome back, my friend. My name is Melissa K. Norris. I'm a fifth generation homesteader and I help thousands of people every single month learn how to live a homegrown and handmade life using simple, modern homesteading, no matter where you're at. And today's guest is known as Pork Rye. 
His real name is actually Ryan Curtin, I believe is how you say it. But he is known as a pork evangelist across the country and even overseas in East Africa, which we are going to get to talk about that some. I find it very interesting and fascinating. But he works as an international agricultural educator and niche meat marketing expert. For over five years, Ryan has dedicated his life to training and educating experienced and beginning farmers, primarily on small scale livestock production, business and marketing. And we are definitely going to be talking about raising pork on a smaller livestock homestead environment. So I'm really, really excited to welcome him onto the podcast and to talk about this. To get links to some of the previous episodes that I mentioned to and some of the things that we will be talking about, you can grab all of that at melissaknorris.com forward slash 331. That's just the number 331 because this is episode 331. Again, melissaknorris.com forward slash 331. Let's get to today's episode. Well, I am super excited for this episode. I'm going to warn y'all it's going to be high energy because very few people do I meet that uh, tend to have the energy level that I do. And without further ado, Pork Run, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. You you, you brought the wrong person here. (laughs) I don't think about wrong. I'm thinking about right. So I loved your energy at HOA. And so I was really glad we were chatting a little bit before we started recording guys. And I basically sent him an intro that gave an invite to the podcast that gave him no opportunity to bow out or to say no. I basically said, Hey, what's the date and time you want to come on to? So I'm really glad that he took my strong arm invitation and accepted. So I'm really excited. I have a feeling we're going to be covering a lot in this episode. So we're just going to dive right into it. One of the things that when we were chatting that really is you said that you see a lot of things offered online. And I'm going to assume because I like to assume the best about everybody that a lot of this stuff is is offered with good intentions. But you you see a lot of things when it comes to raising pigs online or often, I should say, that causes problems or can be problematic. So I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's let's get into this. So background about me, I used to farm, we'll go back into farming, work with the National Pork Board in Port Chekhov, bring heritage breeds when I farm, we'll go back into raising heritage breeds. And I've been teaching folks how to raise pigs, both across the country as well as overseas over the last five years. Uh, so I'm using that experience uh, as I'm you know, going to talk about this. And so one of the things that I've noticed with People who are getting into pig farming and they've never raised pigs before in their entire life, most likely don't even come from a farming background, is there are a lot of problematic issues in terms of feed, in terms of land practices, in terms of animal welfare, and I dare say legalism when we get into, you know, homesteading groups, groups that are alternative to the conventional standards and models with uh, the pork industry. I've seen a lot of misinformation in terms of how much you should feed your pig. Oh man, like, like Melissa, there, there's so much conflicting information that it, it, it should drive one crazy, honestly. Uh, and I, I feel for people who are getting into raising pigs and have no idea where to start, or they go to one blog post and they go to a, 
a couple of YouTube videos and are getting completely different information. And there's not really any consistency or continuity. Uh, most people are looking for like formula, like what's a, what's a formula that I can use and, and uh, be successful in. And the one thing that I want to dispel, one of the biggest myths, I dare say hogwash, is that uh, there is no formula for this. Amen. Amen. <laughs> there, there is absolutely no formula. Now, when you get into commercial conventional farming, there actually is a formula. And if you follow it, you'll do just fine. But for the heritage breeds, for people who are raising pigs outdoors or out in pastures or in barns, uh, it's a lot different. There's not that, that consistency because, A, you got the elements that affect how, how much a pig will eat. Uh, so, for example, when it's hotter, pigs do not like eating when they're hot. They just don't. They don't. One bit. So then their, their, their ability to uh, gain muscle mass and fat goes down because they're not eating as much, right? When it's cold, they eat far more right? Because they're trying to use grain or whatever you're feeding them as a way of generating heat uh, for them to stay warm. So there's not really any consistency because we're not raising pigs in lab rat environments. We're just not. Uh, and so one thing that I really promote is having a farmer's eye. And what I mean by that is not just feeding an animal, uh, giving it water and shelter, not just those things, but all the context in between that, right? And what re really requires is observational skills. You're going to make mistakes. Well, not you, Melissa, but you know, audience. Oh, no, uh, I make plenty of mistakes, <laughs> but thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to throw you under the bus. <laughs> you know, but if you're farming and you're getting started, you're going to make a lot of mistakes in terms of feed, in terms of uh, housing, in terms of you know, animal welfare. And that's fine. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. There are a lot of people that are uh, doing videos or blogs that don't have necessarily the background that I have or the background that a conventional pig farmer would have. And so, you know, a lot of people are learning from people who are just now getting started. There are a lot of people who are learning about how to raise pigs from people who have been raising pigs for one year or less, right? And the people who have been raising pigs and even outdoors for multiple years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, they're not online because they're too busy making money raising pigs. And so that can be problematic in a lot of cases. But one thing I want to say is have grace for yourself as you're starting out and figuring stuff out. But just understand that there is no formula and that that formula changes with the breed, with the particular type of pigs that you get. But even within a breed, there are different variations of, of sizes. Um, you know, Melissa, you raise uh, American guinea hogs and there's a, you know, big bone variety. And then there's the ones that remain really small. And the difference in grow out can be very drastic between those two different um, types within that one breed, you know? So there are a lot of nuances with raising pigs. And so part of me now uh, eventually starting Corporate TV is being able to have people understand that you can be successful in raising pigs within your particular context. But the important thing is being flexible, being able to take constructive criticism, and being able to have observational skills and utilize those observational skills for better practices. I see a lot of people that um, end up unfortunately falling into legalism and they're saying, well, this person raises pigs this way. So if you're not raising pigs this way, then you're not a good farmer. I hear that a lot. 
Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of people like, well, if you're not raising your kids on pasture, then you're not a good farmer. Well, I believe that every, just about everyone can raise kids. And I believe that, and I might, I might get some hate mail for this. I don't believe that pasture production for pigs is the only way, right? I go to East Africa, they got, they, they, might, they got prairies, they got savannas, they got pasture. And if they have pasture, they're not putting pigs on there. They're putting cows, they're putting goats, and they're putting sheep on there. I think they're the last thing they're going to put on pasture. That makes absolutely no sense. Also, they have uh, two-legged predators, right? So not only do they have the four-legged wild animal, they got two-legged predators, a.k.a. humans, who will actually come and steal their pigs. There is no um, electric netting when there are brown outs, electric brown outs every day or a couple of times a day, right? So, you know, I like to look at what's your context? What are your limited resources? What do you have? What's your experience? How much time do you have to do this? And then when I'm working with farmers, I just help them create their own plan within their given limitations, their given time management, their given lifestyle, and in a way that still allows for proper animal welfare. There are some people who are very legalistic within our particular sector of homesteading and and farming that uh, end up really bashing commercial farms. And then the issue that I see is when I go to these homesteading farms, I see animals in more deplorable situations than when I see when I go to a commercial hog situation, or even when I see when I go to East Africa. Explain that to me. How, how, can, how can one person be bashing a system yet not have proper animal welfare? That makes absolutely no sense. But this is something that I see a lot uh, in common with uh, people who want to uh, have a formula for how they be successful or want to be in legalism on there's only one way of doing something right. And I truly don't believe that. I think there are multiple ways of having healthy hogs and even a healthy family with those hogs. Yeah. You know, I completely agree with you on so many things, especially with the context and looking with where you at and working within the resources and also understanding climate as well as workload. So until very recently, actually, I worked a day job where I was commuting. I was a pharmacy tech and was commuting 18 miles one way. My husband still works off of our our homestead and farm. And so he still has a day job. And so for us, we do have our pigs on pasture, but we don't rotate them. They're not on fresh grass every day, simply because when you leave at 5 a.m. in the morning and it's dark and you're not getting home until sometimes six o'clock at night, if not later, there's only so many hours in the day. So, you know, I think just like you said that that legalistic part and yes, no matter what method you choose to raise your pigs, you're going to want to make sure that you are raising them as ethically and as humanely as possible. But there's more than one way to do that. So I'm really happy that you're that you're talking about that. And also looking at your climate, because from our experience, the American guinea hogs that we had, it, it overall was a very pleasant experience. And I have, were they worth it? A different episode you guys can all go and listen to on that and drawing the difference between raising the Hereford versus the American guinea hogs. But you really need to do take into your climate with the different breeds as well as expectations. Um, but I wanted to circle back to one of the things, and that is feed, because feed not oh. only how much, as you said, um, and definitely your your climate and the time of year and so many things are going to determine the best thing is looking at the animal. Does it look healthy? Does it look underweight? Is it looking too fat and adjust? But types of feed, 
because as you know, that is also controversial. Like, who knew homesteading could be so controversial? Like, I swear every aspect of homesteading I talk about, there's controversy somewhere or another. But I'd, I'd love to address that because I, I know this is a, is a thing where a lot of people, you know, some people are like, well, just go, you know, go to the bakery and get, you know, day old bread that they're they're getting rid of. And then you've got your purist and your legal. It's like, right, like there's all these things, but like, let's talk about it. Like, why is that a good idea? Why is that not a good idea? You know, all the things. Let's dive into feeding pigs. Oh, man. So... You know, you mentioned earlier of, you know, what does a healthy pig look like? And I think part of the issue is a lot of people who are starting raising pigs doesn't know what a healthy pig looks like. Mm. So, yeah, you know, or how a healthy pig behaves. And so that's part of the reason why I'd say, you know, before you get your pigs, spend some time volunteering on a local farm that has a practice that you want to have if possible. And, and that's not for everybody. Like, you know what, not everyone has the time or energy. Um, even, even it's just like, you know, what, I'm just going to spend a weekend once a month going to a farm. They might be a couple miles away, several miles away, but I want to learn how they're doing things and get acclimated because when you're starting out with no understanding of a, a strong foundation of what a good animal looks like, of what good proper feed management looks like, then you're just shooting in the dark, hoping that you hit something. And sometimes that might be the, at the detriment of your hogs. You know, I've heard plenty of stories, pigs die. And let me tell you something, it's hard to kill pigs. It's really, you have to just really, you have to really try hard to kill pigs. But I've heard plenty of stories of homesteaders and that had mismanaged their pigs so poorly that they end up passing away. And that's wow. extraordinarily unfortunate. Um, you know, so that's why I say, you know, get under somebody who knows what they're talking about. Not just these people on YouTube or on the blog post, but someone who's got five years of experience, even three years of experience raising pigs and can give you a little bit of advice and guidance. Um, you know, but if we start talking about feed, one thing uh, at the HOA conference, uh, I did a whole thing about alternative feed. Because I, I know that's the home centers love to talk about. They love to talk about how, they, how they're getting alternative this and alternative that and saving money here and there. But oftentimes I see pigs who, have, who are emaciated or pigs who are underweight or pigs who uh, are obese, pigs who have carcass qualities that aren't what the homesteader intended them to have, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're expecting a meaty hog, but you're feeding it nothing but carbohydrates, well, when it's time to process it, all you're getting is a really fat, obese pig. You're getting more lard than you probably know what to do with. Now, with home setters, it's not as much of a problem because a lot of home setters like to use lard. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yes. Praise, yep. praise <laughs> the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, but I wanted more meat. Oh, but my bacon, it's, it's 90% fat and 10% actual muscle meat. Why is that? And so I think the biggest thing is understanding what is feed? What are the components of feed? Uh, so at the conference, I talked about how very simply, and I teach this in East Africa, where, where I'm not speaking their language. I have to have a translator to do that. And so I have to speak very simply. So what I normally will say is you know, feed is made out of carbohydrates. The examples of carbohydrates would be uh, using feed would be things like corn, right? Energy source, right? Think of carbs as energy sources. Then you have your protein source. Oftentimes, uh, conventional feed, we use soybeans as a protein source, right? Uh, then you're thinking about fiber, 
minerals, other different aspects about feed that really go a long way in terms of having a healthy quality hog. I can say, oh, well, just feed 16% protein, free protein feed that, that's already been milled and feed that to your pigs. Well, that's not completely accurate because with American guinea hogs, they're so obesity prone that they really need to be on an extraordinarily limited grain diet, right? More, more opportunity for forage. Uh, so don't feed them a whole bunch of bread if you have uh, lardy-based pigs, unless you want a lot of fat and not a lot of meat. That's what you want. Perfect. Fine. You're doing a great job. Uh, but if you're wanting more meat on your hog, but you're raising heritage, more lardier breeds, then you want to be really consistent and conscious about how much carbohydrates you're eating. Uh, but let's say you have a meteor pig, like I was at um, Jason at Soda Land. We uh, had butchered a hog, and I was examining the meat quality, and we talked about it because he was really disappointed that he didn't get a lot of meat. And so I asked him 59 million questions, and at the end of it, it came out to the fact that potentially uh, his pigs were being fed organic 16% crude protein feed all the way throughout their entire life, right? But oftentimes when we start practicing more um, proficient swine husbandry, around two months to three months before the pig is going to be slaughtered, we actually reduce the amount of crude protein down to 14%, maybe even 12%, depending on the breed. And the reason why we will do that is because we want to reduce the amount of protein and increase the amount of carbohydrates. Because we've increased the amount of carbohydrates, what that means is we get more fat. They're going to store all that energy into fat, right? And so if you think about um, people who eat meat versus people who eat nothing but bread, one user is going to get fatter than the other, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's one way of really looking at it is from that aspect. But it depends on your breed. So for people who are raising, again, larvae-based breeds, you got to be really mindful about how much to feed your pig grain or anything that's floured or, you know, baked goods, that too. Otherwise, you get a lardy pig uh, and not a lot of meat. But if you have more muscular pigs like your Herbert, uh, I dare even say Gloucester Old Spots, uh, Tamworths, Durops, then that's not going to be a huge concern. You actually want to make sure that your pigs do gain fat before processing. Uh, so you want to actually increase your carbohydrate load uh, before their processing date by two months. So that way they have enough fat cap on them to where you get flavorful, delicious pork. Because fat is where the flavor is at. That's why we like bacon. <laughs> bacon, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that's fascinating because speaking of the timing and the climate, as you were talking with our Herefords, when we raise and butcher them, we typically butcher in October, which means from like August on, we've got tons of apples around here. And we actually make up an apple mash that we feed them uh, in order to supplement the organic food that we're buying for them. And because we're butchering them in October, we've got apples all the way out to finish them. And they're not a larger breed, like you said. But as you were talking, I was going back over and with the American guinea hogs, we actually kind of reverse that because we butchered them the end of January. And so the last two months before butcher date, we didn't have any apples left because, you know, obviously by then that we'd went through all that we had uh, just because of the time of year. And so their carbohydrates actually got reduced the last two months before butcher. Of course, I still got massive amounts of lard because it's really. So talking about feed um, and the carbohydrates 
as well as their protein sources. So as I said, we like to supplement with apples when we can, which is a fruit. There's fiber in there, but obviously it's so, uh, you know, vegetables from the garden and all of that. But when you're looking at specific protein sources other than soy, and I personally try to avoid soy, like with every study under the sun, you're going to find, you know, a study that can kind of back you up one way or the other, it seems. Um, but I personally try to avoid soy, especially conventional soy because of GMOs, GMOs, <laughs> GMOs. <laughs> but wow, you sound like, a, like you're from the Midwest. You do avoid <laughs> Right. I, I can adapt accents here. But when you're looking at protein sources, if you're trying to do go the route of producing more of the pig's feed on your homestead, what would be some other protein sources that one could look at? Good question. So before I even talk about that, I have to say that protein, the source of protein, if you're buying feed, is generally the most expensive ingredient in your feed bill. Uh, and so, A, that's why when you reduce your crude protein from 16 to 14, you note that there's a significant difference in cost. Um, so it is important to figure out what are some other ways of, of finding something other than soybeans. Uh, cool fun fact about soybeans, uh, the reason why it's so popularly used globally has nothing to do other than the fact that they were able to market the soybeans very well on a global level. That's all it has to do. There are uh, alternatives such as rapeseed, uh, pearl millet, the grain variety, uh, sunflower seeds, and even filled peas that equivalent, if not uh, exceed soybeans in terms of crude protein. Uh, and, you know, I think filled peas are a really good way of, of you know, having food plots uh, for your pigs and allowing that being a source of protein. The trade-off would be that you have to be really mindful of timing when do pigs enter into that food plot uh i know some farmers will actually uh, grow several acres of filled peas of their local variety of filled peas uh some work better in different climates so like in the georgia north carolina area uh iron clay peas work very well iron clay peas probably wouldn't work well where you're at melissa uh and so they'll bail uh those peas fresh peas uh, and they'll bail it all, and it'll make it into a silage or something like that that they'll feed throughout the year. That's one way that people get around that. But if you're not at a efficient economy of scale, meaning that you don't have a lot of acres, you don't have a lot of machinery, uh, it can be really challenging. Uh, I know some people will, I got one friend, he goes to uh, Chipotle, and he gets beans from Chipotle, hmm. and that's what he does if he gets the beans from Chipotle. Actually, he gets the beans, the chips, all the things from Chipotle, mm -hmm. and he feeds that to his hogs. And he, he, he also raised American guinea hogs. Uh, so, you know, he never really spent a dime on actual feed. You know, do, do I recommend that? I only recommend that if it is uh, not post-consumer. I repeat, not post-consumer. I do not recommend post-consumer um, restaurant scraps. What I mean by that is someone ate it, took a bite into it, threw it in the trash, and then that restaurant collected that food scraps and then gave it to the, and they gave it to the farmer, and that farmer gave it to the pigs. That's a good way of spreading diseases. I don't recommend that. But, far, but restaurants will have scraps 
or leftover food that, you know, didn't go to the consumer because it's still sitting on the bar. And so then what they'll do is if you're working with a farmer, the farmer will say, hey, just put it in a bucket or put it in a trash container. I'll provide a trash container for you. You just dump it out. Just make sure that uh, there's no pork in it. Do not feed your pigs pork. Yes. <laughs> yes, for and, the love. Um, and, uh, you know, they might give them $20, $20 for a full trash can or something like that. Some people, they're like, we don't even pay us. We're just glad that it's that this waste is going towards something good and meaningful. So that's a way that you can kind of do it. But if you're trying to grow your own grain, your own uh, protein source, it's going to be really challenging. And that's why mm -hmm. a lot of people just go to buy bag feed anyway. But again, bag feed's more expensive. So unless you have the acreage, or I dare say, unless you work with farmers who have the acreage, because you don't have to do everything on your own. I talk with plenty of farmers who don't have the same amount of acreage that they would like to have. But they're still getting field peas, uh, sunflower seeds, pearl millet, rapeseed from other farmers who are nearby and just partnering with them. That way it's more of a cooperative effort rather than I have to figure this out all by myself and all on my own. Yeah. And that's why I really like with our climate and the amount of acreage that we do have, we have purchased supplemental organic pig feed mix. We actually have a local granary mill it's about an hour away from us but that feels good because they try to source from as many local farmers as they can and it is certified organic which is important to me i know that's not important to everyone and that doesn't mean that everybody has to go that route but that and we do pay more for that feed again that's a personal choice but i love the suggestion of chipotle and the reason i love that is because they actually have a non-gmo stance and have for a really long time so as far as looking at getting food sources, you know, outside of like from a farmer, but like a restaurant, that's actually, even though it is a chain, that's probably one of the best ones that you could pick. So I, I love that you gave that suggestion. Oh, great. And also a pro tip, uh, if you're using spent grain, um, just understand that 80% of spent grain is actually water and uh, you're not getting the nutritional value out of it. So spent grain, if it was dried, it would have 26% crude protein. Um, no, actually, no, I took that back. 29% um, crude protein. But if it's wet, which is what people mostly get spent grain, it's only 7.7% .7 crude protein. Uh, so misconceptions uh, with that. Uh, also, spent grain is very, it gets moldy very quick. So I don't recommend spent grain as a primary feed source. I recommend it as an add-on to an already complete diet. Okay, I, I don't even know that terminology. What does spent grain mean? Uh, so you think of um, brewer's, brewery, brewer, brewer's grain? Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, brewer's okay. Grain. Okay. I had never even thought of going that route, but I'm glad that you made that distinction for us. <laughs> I've learned all kinds of new things. I love this. Um, I do want to, like, there are so many, we might just have to have a, have a part two and have you back on. Uh, see, I yeah. did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've got so many more things that I want to ask, but I want to try to keep this in a somewhat concise. Uh, my listeners know conciseness is really not um, a skill set that I have developed, though I am working on it. Um, but going back to a little bit of, of the breeds, because I think that's where we get enamored with heritage breeds. And I, I get it. I love heritage. That's why I grow an all heirloom seed garden. You know, like I love heritage and I love 
being able to protect them. But there's also a reason that hybrids, both in breeding programs as well as garden seeds, have been developed. So can you talk a little bit to picking heritage versus other breeds and then within heritage breeds? And I know this could be an entire complete episode all on its own getting into this, but within the heritage breeds, like certain things to consider when you are picking a heritage breed, if that's the route you choose to go. Uh, I love it. Uh, yeah, let's get into that. So with heritage breed pigs, um, some background on me, uh, my first pigs were heritage breed. They were English large blacks or simply known as large blacks. They're the black pig with the super floppy ears. They uh, look extraordinarily adorable. You can't see their eyes because their ears are covering it. <laughs> um, and uh, then red wobble. And then I've raised um, crosses, some of them heritage varieties of Hampshire and Duroc, uh, as well as commercial Yorkshire. Uh, so I, I'm grateful that I've had those different experiences and I've even bred, uh, both purebred as well as uh, hybrids. So one thing that I'll say in heritage is that there's a reason why they're heritage. Uh, they do extraordinarily well in low input situations. And what I mean by that is, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, these pigs were not being fed a strict grain diet. I'll repeat that one more time. They were <laughs> not pampered. They were not pampered pigs that got, that got fed a strict grain diet. They just weren't. They were getting fed any, any old kind of thing. Uh, from house scraps, slaughter waste, and then once fields were uh, harvested, they'll send the pigs out to clean up the fields, right? Pigs were low-input animals, just like chickens. Uh, and that allowed for a lot of people to uh, be able to have a meat source that was low-input, uh, meaning that that was saving them money. Uh, in fact, you know, pigs uh, used to be able to uh, can't say this so much today, but they used to be able to really be a lifesaver for a lot of families when crops failed that year. At least they had pigs to pay off any bills and mortgage, whatever it might have been. Uh, and so one of the issues that we have today is that we have switched more to a commercial hog. Part of the reason of that is because somewhere around the, I believe, 40s, 50s, or 60s, somewhere in between there, uh, there was a crisis on heart disease. And people were trying to figure out what's causing heart disease. And it came down to two things, sugar-related products and fat-related products, including fat industries. And uh, unfortunately, there was some falsified information, and uh, sugar ended up winning. Fat ended up being the blame for heart disease. Mm. And what ended up happening with that was, that's why you have, like, um, yogurt, that's like low fat. It literally says low fat, but like 12 grams of sugar in yeah. a cup. <laughs> People don't understand that, that sugar, when not utilized properly, converts to what? Fat. Yes. Um, and insulin so, resistance issues and so many different things. Keep preaching, Liz. Keep preaching. So, you know, that's part of the reason why a lot of these animals went out of favor. They also went out of favor because uh, around the Industrial Revolution in this country, we realize that we can produce synthetic oils, cheaper vegetable oils, as a way of machinery. Like we were using well blubber to oil 
to oil trains, like, uh, you know, but now we're using more synthetic oils to be able to use machinery. So that's another reason why pigs also went out of favor. Also, these pigs grow very slow. So in terms of homesteaders, if you're getting heritage breed pigs, they will grow slower than your commercial pigs. Usually commercial hogs are ready at around six months and they weigh somewhere between um, 280 pounds to 300 pounds, uh, usually around 280 at six months. Those are for your commercial hogs. Now, when you get a heritage breed, you do have some variation. So your Herefords, your, um, what other breeds are there other than Herefords? Your Tamworths, other more meteor breeds. Usually they're at 680, sorry, 280, if not 300 by eight months, right? Yeah. Usually yeah. I'll say grow them out for an additional two months to get more back fat on them. Uh, so then you have your lard pigs like your American guinea hogs. That can take a year to year and a half, depending on the particular type of American guinea hog. Uh, English lard blacks can take 10 years, sorry, 10 months to uh, a year, a year and a half to reach around 260. Right. So there are a lot of different variations with the breeds. And I highly recommend if you want more information on the comparisons, uh, just look up um, heritage breed, heritage hog breed comparisons chart. And you should be able to find it at the livestockconservancy.com, sorry, .org. Uh, and they'll give you way more information than you probably want to know on each individual breed uh, from that standpoint. Uh, another thing to consider is with heritage breed. The meteor breeds do very well with retail cuts. However, that's where they shine because they provide more muscle mass uh, and that's great. With your lard based pigs, like your mule foot, your large black, uh, your cooney um, coonies, your American guinea hogs, they weren't made for necessarily meat production. They were made really more for fat production, but fat actually was more valuable than the pork itself. So uh, they really shine and sausages and ground pork they shine very well in prosciutto. so part of the reason why a lot of people were raising lard baked pigs or having issues with marketing their pigs is because they're marketing as if they're retail hogs and they're not they're absolutely not they need to be marketed and treated a lot differently again fat is where the flavor is at so when you're doing bratwurst no better bratwurst than a lard pig bratwurst. That's the best bratwurst you're going to ever have. Best sausage you're going to ever have. Best prosciutto you're going to ever have compared to your more leaner breeds, even on the heritage side. Uh, so if you're raising these heritage breeds, especially the lard ones, start thinking outside the box from retail cuts. Because if you try to make pork chops out of, out of American, uh, American guinea hog, your pork chops are going to be small. Yes, and lots of fat. <laughs> lots of fat. Your eye, the loin eye loin, will be extremely tiny. You can probably put a pencil through it. So, you know, think about, think about from a standpoint of, I can sell these pigs, holes and halves. I can turn them into cachinery. I can turn them into ground pork and sausage. And maybe keep the bacon in hams, in hams. Uh, if you want to, you know, use ham for cachinery as well. Uh, but they don't shine well with pork chops, don't shine very well with uh, leg roasts or Boston butts or sometimes even bacon or pork chops. They don't shine well doing those things. So stick to the strength of the pigs. Uh, when I used to work for the Livestock Conservancy, I did change some of the utilization descriptions for the breeds. So if you go on their website, uh, livestockconservancy.org, 
and look at the breed profiles on the side, you should be able to see the utilizations uh, for those breeds. And it should be up to date because I did update them before I resigned from there. So those are my thoughts on that. Okay, awesome. I love that because, yeah, the American Guinea Hog was the best bacon we've ever had, bar none. And the ham, actually, the ham was fatty, but when I cooked it in the slow cooker and then shredded it, oh my gosh, like it was amazing. But it's not like a, a spiral cut, you know, like when you think of spiral cut hams, like that is not what you were getting. So I'm with you there. It definitely, if we raise the American guinea hogs again, I'll probably just raise them for the bacon and the sausage and a couple of the, of, of the ham cuts. We won't even bother with the pork chops. I have to say the pork chops were delicious because of the fat and quite moist, but yet you're getting such little meat per pork chop cut. It's like I often almost have to cook six for our family of four just to barely get enough meat for everybody. So I'm really glad that you that you brought those uh, points up. And so it's kind of like, oh, do we get a couple of American guinea hogs just for the bacon and sausage and then raise the Herefords? I don't know. We'll we'll see what we end up doing. Um, but some amazing resources. And in today's blog post that accompanies this episode, we will provide all of the, the links and different things that uh, Ryan has been so gracious to point us in the direction of one of the things you had mentioned that I wanted to talk about and just myself learn more about is your work in Uganda uh, with with raising pork. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I go overseas to East Africa, uh, Uganda, and as well as uh, Tanzania or Tanzania, if you got country accent. Uh, and I teach people basically very in very simple manners how to raise pigs within their context. And I'm really blessed by that experience because it allows for me to really look at farming more contextually. So when I realized that when I, so I made a rookie mistake. I remember my first year going, and uh, I go under an organization called Eat Beta. It's E-A-T-B-E-T-A. And it stands for Evangelizing Africa Through Business Empowerment and the Transformation of Agriculture. Uh, so we're not simply about giving money to, to people. We're about how do we train and educate people on best practices with their business and with their farm. Uh, so one slogan that I use when I go over there is farming is business. Farming is business. I don't care if you're doing it for subsistence living or if you're trying to make money off of it. It's always a business because you're having inputs and there are outputs, right? And usually that requires some type of economic uh, or capital uh, to be able to make that thrive. And so when I go over there, you know, I'm working within their context. They don't say soybeans, they say soya. They don't say uh, corn, they say maize brine. Uh, you know, they're having limited ingredients and limited resources. Uh, they're using different, even feed additives like sunflower seed cake and, and fish meal and all these other things. And so being able to understand that not all of them are at a place where they can raise healthy pigs, it's really important. Like it's even sad sometimes when I have to recommend that they not raise pigs because they're not at that scale. And I dare say, even to your audience, you know, you might not be at a scale where it's economically viable for you to raise pigs. And we'll let you know there is no shame in that. Absolutely no shame in that. You know, stick to chickens, grow that chicken operation out a little bit more, 
uh, whether it's egg production or um, or meat birds, I recommend meat birds, uh, and uh, you know scale up from there. And that's what a lot of people have done to really be successful in raising pigs. They start out small. They start out with chickens, and then they build up the pigs, and then they'll build up to to cattle or maybe the goats and sheep. And uh, that's been a really good model for uh, East Africa is showing people that you can scale up your farming operation and you have to do it incrementally. So a lot of people will, who are philanthropists will just donate tractors to East Africa, right? These people don't know how to use a tractor. Most of them don't. And when something breaks down, they can't fix it. So when my team goes down there, we're not teaching how to use a tractor. We're teaching how do you hand plow? How do we get you from a hand plow or hand hoe to a hand plow where you're actually tilling the earth through, through, through a hand mechanized plow. And we're doing funding for that and we're giving those out. So it's appropriate technology, appropriate training and education, rather than we're just gonna give money, rather than we're just gonna fix all your problems. No, we're gonna teach how do you run a business. So when I go over there, uh, I teach farming is a business and I teach people about animal welfare because there are a lot of issues with animal welfare and a country that would be deemed third world or developing, people over there don't treat pigs like pets. They treat pigs like stupid dirty animals. And so part of what I do is I teach animal welfare is not necessarily uh, the primary goal. The primary goal is economics. The primary goal is making money. Well, if I know that the real issue is they want to make money, then I equate animal welfare, proper animal welfare, with uh, higher profitability. So for example, if you are uh, putting your pig on a more standardized feed ration, uh, your pigs grow out faster, meaning you get your money quicker. Very simple and easy, right? Uh, if I talk about how uh, reducing your herd, if your herd is unmanageable, if you have too many pigs and you can't afford to have too many pigs, by reducing your herd uh, and just sticking to uh, a few and feeding those well, it increases your reputation because now you're having pigs that are actually at weight and people are getting that pork and they're getting the quality pork that they're wanting rather than emaciated pigs, right? And so that increases reputation. That means comeback customers where you're dealing with breeding, you know, thinking about when you're really treating your sow with respect, not beating it, when you're really giving your sow enough water, enough feed rationing, uh, then that allows for you to have healthier piglets, allows for your piglets to be weaned to survival. And then that means more profit per pig, right? So everything really can boil down to economics uh, when I go over there. And that's allowed for me to translate that back to the states and really show people that every decision that you make as a farmer has an economic impact. It will always have an economic impact, whether big or great or small or great, small, small or great. And so that allows for a lot of people to see that, you know, their decision to switch feeds, that's an economic decision. Can you afford to do that? If not, that's okay. There's no shame, you know, or uh, I want to go in and I want to do this uh, opportunity with sausage or opportunity with a live event. Okay, cool. What's the economic impact on your farm and how much money will it cost? So that really gets people thinking about how do I save money or how do I reduce my costs? Or how do I become more profitable in the enterprise I already have? Oh, 
I love all of that. And that again is like an entire other episode. We could probably talk for hours and hours and not get through everything. But um, this was great. I really enjoyed it. We'd love to have you come back on. And for those who are wanting to learn more about you, learn from you, check out more about your farm and the work that you're doing, what's the best place for people to connect with you? So people can connect with me uh, on, so I've been, people have been begging me to start a YouTube channel and I've resisted it for I think about a year and uh, I've recently have uh, made a channel and and I'll be posting videos on it um, by the end of this week. So uh, whenever you have this recorded out, I would have already posted videos. And um, yeah, that's the best way. I am okay. considering leaving Instagram. So uh, I won't be on Instagram. And then for emails, uh, you can email me at rhyme, R-H-Y-N-E, at porkrhyme, P-O-R-K-R-H-Y-N-E dot com. Awesome. Did you know, now I know Ryan is your first thing, but my great grandmother's last name was Ryan. Um, I just had to throw that fun little tidbit out there, spelled exactly like yours. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Cousins, that's all. Yeah, I agree. This has been a blast. I can't wait to uh, learn more from you and just be able to share that knowledge to get more people raising more of their own food and, and taking control of their food source. So thank you so much for coming on today. Amen. Amen. And glad to be here. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing with your podcast and your YouTube channel. Uh, you're one of the few folks in, in that space where I don't cringe when I watch a video. So just thank you for the good work that you're doing and uh, the honesty that you have behind it. It really means a lot to me. Oh, thank you. I hope you had as much fun as I did with today's episode and picked up some tips if you are planning on raising your own pork or maybe you already have pork, but you were able to glean some tips and some ideas on where you could get some extra feed without a bunch of extra expense, which I know that always gets me super excited when it comes to our homestead endeavors. While this episode was all about raising pork or mainly about raising pork, Next week, I have another really fun episode for you where we will be having a guest and we will be talking about homesteading, but in particular gardening, especially if you have young children or children at home, how to get them incorporated, but also still how to have a garden and try to stay sane. If you have infants and toddlers or really young children, it can often be hard trying to juggle it all. And we are going to dive into this. It's oh, I had so much fun doing these episodes. I know you're going to enjoy them just as much as I do. So that is coming up for you next week. Blessings and mason jars for now. Mm-hmm.